You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey, what's up, everybody? Um, we're going to do an interesting episode tonight. We're going to have um, Ms. Brianne Ross, who is a high school teacher, and we're going to discuss the presence of amphibians, specifically axolotls, in the classroom. So, uh, Brianne, welcome. Thank you for uh, coming to talk to me today. Thank you. Um, you want to give us some of your background, like how you became um, you know, involved with science and how you became a teacher? Sure. Um, I guess I never imagined myself as a teacher. I can say that uh, definitely right away. But um, when I was an undergrad, I was doing some research, and my research advisor worked on functional morphology of fishes. And one of my good friends who was a graduate student in the lab at the time was expanding upon her, her thesis with axolotls. And so I had never seen an axolotl before, and I fell in love with them, I think, as many people do. And when they first see them, they're really cute and really charismatic. So I used to volunteer to help her do her, her filming because she was filming swimming performance just so that I could spend time with them. So that's kind of how I first got involved with um, axolotls. My research was based on environmental toxicology and fishes. So I worked with Danios, which is a very common model organism um, to work with. And then in grad school, I continued kind of doing more ecology and conservation related things. That's really what my interest is in. And I started teaching just because that was the first job I got out of college as an outdoor educator. So it was kind of accidental, but I really enjoy it. So, I mean, when you did research, did you prefer research in the lab in more of a, you know, more of a sterile setting, or did you prefer more like in the field type of research? That was actually my first experience with research um, as like a junior and senior in college, um, which is part of the reason why it's so exciting for me to get to expose kids to research at the high school level. But um, definitely field research. I can say that now, having done both field and, and lab work, I definitely like to be outside, not stuck in a basement, which is where our, our lab was for my undergraduate. And then, you know, oftentimes as a scientist, you find yourself in rooms and buildings with no windows and things like that. Gotcha. Well, I mean, were there any, um, I guess, common, um, I'm trying to think of the way I want to phrase this. Um, was there like a close relationship between the research that you would be doing with fish and could you do similar research with say like an axolotl in terms of toxicology and, and everything like that? I think definitely um, a lot of the projects that we were doing with the fishes could have been expanded with amphibians, especially because amphibians are so sensitive to any type of environmental contaminant. I was looking at retinoids. So these are things that get into the water stream from a lot of products that, that we use that then ends up in our waterways. So um, I could definitely see that project being expanded with um, with amphibians. And I'm sure maybe one of the students that works with my advisor now has done something to that effect. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I mean, what drew you to incorporating the axolotls into the classroom? Is it just, you know, a, a do you incorporate it into the curriculum at all? Or is it really just more for, um, I guess, kind of using them as like an ambassador to get involved with conservation and, and science in general? I mean, initially, when my axolotls at home reproduced, I was like, what am I going to do with these things? I just had like a ton of them in my basement. And I kind of came up with the idea of why don't I bring them in? Because since it is so easy to visualize the whole process of the embryo developing, you don't even really need that good of a microscope to see it happening. 
I thought it'd be something really nice for the kids to get to see. And so I initially just brought them in so I could put them in containers on the countertop in the lab and, and so that they can watch them. It was only later on when we were doing our first little class experiment that I let the kids um, design themselves that we decided to use the axolotls. I was like, why not? They're available. We can play around with them a little bit. Now, <clears throat> when you had your first breeding, was that accidental or was that something that you actively sought out to do? No, it was accidental. I had originally been keeping my axolotls separate. So they were each in their own tank, but they were growing so big. I really wanted to give them more space. So I bought this big, beautiful coral fragging tank that's not all that deep, but it gives them a lot of space to move around. And the only unfortunate thing about that is, of course, there's no pre-made tank divider that already fits in something like that. So I had to get a little creative and make my own. And um, the axolotls do have ways of breaking through it. So they've gotten through it a couple of times. Yeah, like a, um, like a little prison break. Yeah. So, <laughs> and surprisingly, it's usually the female who's nosing up against the the barrier and pushing on it a little bit. But mm -hmm. how many um, how many offspring did you have from the first pairing? Um, the first time around, I had two females in the tank. And so I ended up probably with over 300 easily. Um, and you know, I have a friend who does breed axolotls and he told me not to worry because they'd probably only end up with about 50 that survived. And that wasn't the case. I had a, a lot of them did really well. So um, lots of them. I have quite a few now, but significantly less, maybe like 100, 150 tops I have now. So those are the ones you still have all those, those, they would be, they'd be sub adults by now, right? Um, well, this is, they, they got through the wall again. So I'm just, I'm okay. going to have to make some space for a new tank. Mm -hmm. Um, that's the reality of it is that, you know, what my best idea of what I came up with is, is not going to work in the long term. So, I mean, what, what is like, what is your care routine for them? I mean, just describe like a typical day in terms of what you would do in terms of care, feeding, husbandry, et cetera. I mean, they're, they're so easy, which is why I think I was brave enough to get them in the first place, because I definitely come from a, like, dog and cats are pets, and that's it kind of family. So um, the fact that I saw how easy they were to maintain in the lab, I felt confident that I could take care of them. So, um, I mean, I keep them in my basement, which is great because it's the perfect temperature down there for them. So the water stays nice and cool. It's nice and dark. Um, like I said, I have them in this nice big coral fragging tank. I do a partial water change maybe like once a week. And then thankfully for me, they're not picky eaters. So I do my best to give them a varied diet. So I do give them both live food and frozen food. They eat frozen floodworms, brine shrimp. Um, I can usually get uh, live blackworms and sometimes tube effects worms. They like those as well. Um, they're not a huge fan of the pellet food. So I really don't give that to them all that often. Um, but yeah, I mean, anything that's alive that I think they would like, sometimes I'll try shrimp. I've given them shrimp, little fishes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've always been a very big proponent of a varied diet and I try to, I mean, when I started it, you really only had two choices. You had crickets and you had mealworms, but now mm -hmm. as time's gone by, we have other feeders available. And I think that on the whole, the community is kind of noticing a difference offering, a, you know, a varied selection of prey because obviously, I mean, for any organism, unless you're really, really specific in your dietary needs, you're not going to get everything that you need from one species of prey, so to speak, or from one food source. Yeah. 
So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's nice to also see that, you know, on a scientific level, it's, it's, it's proven that that works. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, unless you have something that's like, like you were saying, a super specialist species, then they're going to have pretty much like opportunistically what they can find, they're going to eat. And Mm -hmm. the actual eat anything that's smaller than their head. So yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you have a favorite morph? Um, If you asked me this, like seven years ago when I first got them, I definitely would have said 100% the leucistic. I love the pink ones. They're so cute. Um, I was actually planning to order two and I was going to get two leucistic. I decided not to because I had convinced myself that I wouldn't be able to tell them apart. So I ended up getting a leucistic and a melanistic. Um, now I have a wild type. A friend gave me. I had a wild type that had the green fluorescent plo- protein that glowed in the dark. Um, when they bred, I got a bunch of uh, the golden-eyed albino one. So really, that was that was what you got. From, that's what yeah. you got from the breeding. Really, okay. That's what I got from the breeding. I was very surprised. I was expecting, um, I don't know, a bunch of wild type, which I did get. Uh, the fewest that I got were the leucistic. I only got a handful of of leucistic babies, but I got tons of the albino kind. So that was very interesting. I had. Um... I've had a few on and off over the years, and the the one that I had for the longest time was was a, a male golden albino, and he was just like mm-hmm. it, just stunning. The leucistics are, are great, but he like the golden albino. He almost seemed to like glow, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not yeah. not yeah. I mean, I know obviously the um, we have ones that glow already, but this just seemed to glow. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you do, um, like in in a classroom setting. Would you say that it's easier for students to engage with something like an axolotl that, I mean, they're, they're an attractive species. They almost look like they have a grin. They're not, um, they don't come off as being as potentially like frightening as you might consider certain other species or a little bit mm-hmm. less intense. Do you find that students are more likely to engage with them as opposed to another species? I think so. I've, like I said, we, I let my kids design their own experiments for class. And so we're always looking for an easy model organism, an inexpensive model organism that we can work with. So it does usually end up being some type of invertebrate, which a lot of the students don't necessarily respond positively to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the axolotl is different. So I don't know if it's that vertebrate versus invertebrate thing. The fact that they're really cute and look like Pokemon. But um, <laughs> Pokemon. a lot of the kids really do like the axolotls, especially when they were growing. They all wanted to watch them grow. I kept one of the offspring in the lab as like a class pet and, and the kids love it. They voted on a name. They used to fight over who was going to feed it. Um, and I actually sent quite a few kids and colleagues home with axolotls as pets. So that's really exciting that they liked them so much. They wanted their own. It's, it's nice knowing that you can kind of plant a seed in someone's mm-hmm. mind and then hopefully they'll, they'll carry that torch on in their personal life and then in their career. Definitely. I, um, I did, um, in my daughter's school, we had, uh, during the summer, what they call brown bag lunch since the weather mm-hmm. was poor. And I mean, this is obviously not this past year. This is prior, obviously due to COVID everything, but, um, you know, I, I came in and I did a brief, um, introduction and a little short little presentation on frogs. I brought some of my own, you know, from my own collection. And it's interesting because you don't really get that wow factor you get really more of a huh that's really interesting type of response you know i feel Mm -hmm. like some some organisms that you would bring you know out it's it becomes kind of becomes more of just like a show like a show and tell and i found that the kids are really more interested in learning about you know in uh, conservation issues 
rather than, you know, if I brought out like a live alligator, everyone's going to jerk, wow, a live alligator. But it was, no, I've got these little frogs. And if you guys want to see them, you have to, you can't touch them. You have to just come up and look and be quiet. And it was, it was nice, you know, I mean, you know, got a couple of kids come up afterwards and they said you know they were really interested in whatnot so it's 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 nice having certain species that you know are just going to get a positive response out of someone that you're looking to reach on an educational level yeah and they're perfect for conservation which is one of my biggest interests that's usually how i work them into the curriculum and um, since i don't always have them available to use as a model organism i do like to at least talk about the one that we keep as a pet in terms of of conservation now, do you find it kind of ironic that they're, for all intents and purposes, extinct in the wild, but they're so extremely common in captivity? Yeah, I've had some students um, say that to me. They're like, Miss Ross, how is this species critically endangered, but you have a basement full of them? And I have to explain to them, you know, that obviously my animals didn't come from the wild, that you don't take animals out of the wild, that they were bred in captivity, but um, how they are so important for biomedical research, and they are very common kind of exotic pets, but that's very different from what's going on in in the habitat, which they were endemic to such a small uh, area of Mexico anyway. And since it's in such a bad state that even though we have so many in captivity, you know, the idea of being able to reintroduce them into the wild will never be a reality without some really expensive habitat restoration. I know. And unfortunately, it's I feel like given the present you know, state of the world, um, conservation, conservation issues might sort of fall by the wayside since everyone is out, obviously, with, you know, with with human survival as the priority nowadays. But it it is a shame when something like that sort of, you know, falls through the cracks and it really doesn't get the type of attention it needs. You know, you'd think that, you know, like as you said, as popular and as present as axolotls are as just as pets forget out forget you know as a model organism for research but mm -hmm. you think that there would have been a lot more concern for them but you know actually i forgot i wanted to mention this i was reading an article and um mexico is going to start minting coins with the likeness of an axolotl on them i can't remember which denominate i think it might have been the 20 peso piece that's so cool yeah i thought it was uh, you know i mean if it creates awareness, then that's a good thing. It's just kind of sad that now they're pretty much extinct outside yeah. of their normal environment. I collect foreign coins, so I definitely have to get one Oh, really? Awesome. Yeah. Now, do you ever incorporate axolotls as a, like as a genetic lesson, or are you focused primarily on them as a model organism for conservation? I use them mostly in the research classes because it is an elective and I have a lot of freedom to kind of do what I want with the curriculum. I did briefly consider using the axolotls um, when I had the larvae in the classroom for a genetics lesson until I realized how complicated the inheritance pattern for the coloration patterns were. I was like, let's do, you know, a, an axolotl Punnett square. And then when I was reading papers on how that works, I'm like, okay, now it's definitely beyond the ninth grade level of biology. Mm -hmm. Um. How was it raising the dark frog tadpoles that I gave you? That was fun. I mean, I think with the axolotls not really going through the full metamorphosis, it's so cool to watch something that changes so drastically, like like the frogs do. 
Um, they made me a little nervous though because of how how fast they are. <laughs> yeah, I know they're they're tiny too. That species is is they're tiny. I actually I still have um, two of the sub well they're sub adults now, but they morphed out and I actually just moved them out of. I kept them in a small grow out container for a while and then they kind of outgrew that and I just moved them into a, their permanent terrarium now. But um, it was interesting doing the experiment because you used the spirulina mm -hmm. and I was using something different and I found that just that and the fact that I, I, I know you on a professional level, I know that you kind of have like a magic touch. So mm -hmm. whatever you did in addition to the spirulina, I just, you got more, um, more frogs that morphed than I normally, okay. than I normally do. And I actually replicated your conditions. I started using spirulina and I, I upped the temperature in their, um, in, in their tank. Now I'm keeping them in a 20 long with a sponge filter and, and a heater just to mm -hmm. kind of bring the temperature up a little bit more because I know that when I gave them to you, the, the ambient temperature in the room was, it was probably what, like in the mid seventies, right? Yeah. I mean, it depends who was playing with the thermostat that day. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I know it's, 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 it's rough up there. Um, I mean, what were some challenges that you faced with them? I mean, were there any real difficulties that you had managing their care or, or breeding? The, the axolotls or the frogs? The axolotls. I'm sorry. I should have, um, I should have prefaced that better. No, it's okay. Um, other than the issue of space, because I didn't have so many of them and, and basically my entire basement floor was covered in them. Um, <laughs> really like the hardest part is the fact that when they are, so small, they will only eat live food. So, um, you know, having to hatch the brine shrimp. Yeah, it's fairly easy to hatch brine shrimp, but I did not have the space to be running multiple cultures. So every once in a while you get that culture that crashes and then you're panicking because you don't have any food for them. You have, you have 300 hungry babies or, you know, every single brand of eggs markets themselves as having over a 90% hatch rate, which is not the case. So you, you know, you buy some and you find out that they're not all that great. So really just the stress of having to feed them that until they're big enough that they'll take other foods. That's the hardest part, I think. I mean, you think that that would be something that might, um, well, actually let me rephrase that. Do you think that when it comes to, um, you know, since amphibians on the whole are a lot less forgiving of husbandry errors and things like that, I mean, do you think that it takes more discipline to take care of something like an axolotl or, or, or frogs than it would be to take care of, say, like, um, I know that you also have a bearded dragon in the classroom. Do you think yeah. that it's, it takes more, just more discipline as a keeper to maintain the axolotls as opposed to other species that, you know, like reptiles and mammals? Um, I mean, when, honestly, like when the axolotls are grown, I think that they are super easy I mean, that's, that's me. I, I think they're really easy to keep when they're smaller, not so much as, which is why when I did have all the larvae, when I was offering to people, I'm like, listen, let me keep them and let them get big. And then I'll be sure that like, they'll be easier to take care of. And then you can have them. Cause I'm not, you know, necessarily convinced that the average person wants to have a shrimp hatchery and kind of all this extra time that they're, they're putting into taking care of them. So earlier on, yes, high maintenance, maybe a little bit harder than keeping other pets, but later on, not so much. No, it's, that's interesting because um, as soon as you mentioned the brine shrimp, I, I had raised brine shrimp for a, a different reason. I actually, one of my daughters had, someone had given her a, a brine shrimp kit mm -hmm. and we went through the whole process and everything like that and we got a zero hatch rate. So yeah. I, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what happened, but 
if we were feeding something that would have been a pretty big problem. Like, you know, on a, on a personal level, I, I have to make dart frog cultures. Excuse me, I don't make dart frog cultures. I make fruit fly cultures. And I've had issues yeah. where I'm panic-stricken because, all right, I'm not getting production fast enough and I might have a culture that developed mold or it was it, the ambient humidity in the room was too high and the cultures are getting watery just all that type of stuff that it really doesn't leave you you know a, a margin for error it's not like you can just go out and you know I, I in some places i can just go out and get a get a uh, you know a, a culture of fruit flies but you know if i need several cultures and i need them producing big time now and i don't have it it's it's kind of nerve-wracking i i yeah. tell people that you know if you're going to keep a species with specific dietary requirements or something that feeds on very, very small organisms, it can be mm -hmm. difficult because, you know, you, you can't, you can't go away for two weeks, you know, and just leave everything be. You have to be pretty vigilant about your food supply first, just so that your animals can survive in, you know, in a situation where you don't have access to it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's just, it's, a, it's just, it's an interesting, interesting parallel. Now, um, obviously, on the grounds, um, obviously, the, you know, the, the building that you do teach in, I, I work there as well, but in a different capacity. Um, we've got a lot of native species. I actually found, um, I found the juvenile bullfrog earlier, actually in the building. Every so often, we get, we get them in the building, usually around this time mm -hmm. of year. Um, I mean, have you ever done uh, like a, a, you know, a, a lesson outside with native species or is it just kind of something that doesn't really get into the schedule? I do. Um, when I can, I take the kids outside mostly at the beginning of the year when I'm teaching them the power of observation. So how you need to open your eyes and actually look around you before you can come up with a question to ask. And so we have like the perfect campus for, for that. Um, so much going on in terms of, of wildlife. So I bring the kids outside, um, like I'll ID things for them if if I if I can. I mean the bullfrogs they usually like they didn't realize that that's where the crazy sounds were coming from because when they're down on the field playing sports they they hear the bullfrogs they just didn't realize that um, it was coming from the pond. But we found I set camera traps on campus as well. We found peepers hiding in the camera trap. Um, we found a gray tree frog in the classroom one time. The kids really like that one. They wanted me to keep it, but I had to explain to them that you can't actually keep wild animal that you find because you think it's cute. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you yeah. do you ever have issues with like um, how do you feel about anthropomorphism? You know, when it comes to um, you know keeping animals, do you think that people attribute too many human traits to them, and then they kind of lose sight in terms of what's actually healthy for that animal? Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. It's, it's hard because sometimes I see a little bit of an advantage to it because having experience as like an outdoor educator, I would work with all different age groups and teach preschool classes. And so when I'm teaching little kids about animals, sometimes I explain it to them in terms of, you know, a human, I tell the kids like, Oh, the clam is going to shut because it's scared. You know, obviously a clam is not like a human yeah, and I'm giving yeah. it these human characteristics, but I'm putting it in a way that they can understand and I hope a way that they can relate to and then have compassionate for. So I think in certain ways you can kind of use that to your advantage, but there's definitely a danger in trying to understand everything in, in human terms. Oh, I think that's, that's a great explanation. Um, it's funny cause it, 
you know, I have my own feelings about that, but you know, it's, I agree with you that on a very, very basic level, if you are to engage someone on an educational level, you have to engage them on their level, meaning you have to, you know, find that key that's going to unlock their mind. And it, it does work really, really well. I think especially with axolotls, like we discussed earlier, even though I'm, I'm kind of, like I said, kind of contradicting myself. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it is interesting to see the way people interact with animals. But I find that like sometimes I'll be, I'll be somewhere, like I'll be at like, um, you know, uh, some like a zoo or something like that. And I mean, I'm standing there and I'm just observing everything. And I hear people in the background I'm like, oh, look, they're friends. And I'm like, well, actually, they're not friends. They're technically they're competing for resources by hanging out in the same spot together. But, you know, it's yeah. it's it serves it serves a need. It's, it's quite funny, actually, listening to parents explain things to their kids at the zoo, the things that they make up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I just I just sit quietly. <laughs> I just sit quietly. Don't say anything. Yeah. But I don't know. Um, I mean, in terms of conservation, I know that you're, you know, very, very involved in conservation, both professionally and, and privately. What do you think are some really significant uh, significant issues, you know, related to amphibian conservation? I mean, amphibians are so sad. I love amphibians so much, but like you were saying, they're so sensitive um, to, like, environmental changes that that unfortunately has meant that their populations are completely disappearing and even though like I was saying before that whole like kind of vertebrate versus invertebrate like people tend to care about the things with the backbones a little bit more there still are a lot of people who will look at like a frog and be like ew slimy you know I don't care about that so much as they care about a polar bear so I think that that's that's something also the fact that they're small and you can't necessarily see them so it's kind of like this invisible thing that's happening that people aren't aren't necessarily realizing Mm -hmm. do you think that it is i mean do you think that conservation gets enough attention in news media and things that are accessible to the average person or do you think that it's really more you're really not going to quite get a grasp on it unless you actually go out and look for it yourself I think you probably have to go out looking for it. I mean, I constantly am surrounding myself with these types of things. And that's how, you know, I I stay up on the topics. But I don't think the average person is aware, which is why I like try to be patient with people when I'm explaining to them conservation issues. It's like, okay, they don't know. But once they know, I hope that they do start to care. Mm -hmm. I was actually just reading about um, um, just you know, the, the influence that chytrid fungus has had on frogs really like globally. I mean, what's, what's your take on all that? I mean, it's been a while since I've, I've looked at what the current situation is with the, with the chytrid and the spread of it. I'm not sure um, if they know anything more about it yet. Cause I haven't really been following up on the research, but I mean, just being like a researcher in the field, and studying something like that and all the protocols that you have to follow to make sure that you're not continuing to spread it as you're studying it, like some pretty, pretty serious stuff. You know, it's interesting because there was actually a, a um, there's a new strain of chytrid out there that is affecting salamanders, which I believe it started in Asia and sort of spread through Europe. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, there was a, um, I'm not sure what the, the, most current legal status is, but 
uh, essentially almost every species of salamander was declared injurious by fish and wildlife, and they restricted all trade with the exception of, actually with the exception of axolotls, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting, you know, explaining to someone that like, you know, 20 years ago I had salamanders, I had fire salamanders, I had eastern newts, I had all that stuff. And now with the restrictions due to chytrid, mm-hmm. it's these are species that you're probably never going to see in the average person's collection, at least, at least in the United States. I'm sure it's different elsewhere, but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting how it's, we kind of live in this age. Now we're experiencing a global pandemic that affects humans, but Mm -hmm. all these other living things, and especially amphibians have been facing this global pandemic, so to speak of chytrid for going on someone like 20 years. Yeah. It's like, Someone says like the most destructive pathogen to biodiversity ever. But if you ask most people, they'll tell you that they've never heard of it before. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just, you know, the, the ethics of it is just, I don't know. I'm, I've always been at a loss, you know, people are so absorbed with their own personal issues, which obviously, you know, you're, you're a human being that happens, but it's amazing. You know, for example, I mean, how much debris in space that just goes flying past the earth at any given moment. And everyone is completely unaware that there's an object the size of a Buick flying past the earth at mm-hmm. a, a, a rapid rate of speed. And if it had come just a hair closer, we would all be back in the Permian period again. So uh, I, I think it would be really interesting with what's going on now with, with the COVID. If, if anything changes in terms of attitudes with conservation, just because of, you know, the fact that there are so many infectious diseases that can spread from wildlife to humans and how it really has to do with how we interact with them, whether or not something like this happens again, you know? Yeah, I th- no, I, I think that that's a really good point. And it's, we live in this global neighborhood now where you can realistically be at any given point in the world at any, you know, you could be, well, not now with the travel restrictions, but you could be anywhere. You could be in China, you could be in Japan, you could be in Greenland, Australia, really within less than a day. So it's extremely easy for us to travel around, and a lot of our pathogens on a human level have become extremely cosmopolitan because they're they're everywhere. You can get someone sick in any part of the world, which obviously we learned as a result of the, the COVID pandemic. But it'd be interesting to see the research in a few years explaining what happened while the majority of the world was effectively in lockdown, meaning was there an increase in breeding, reproduction in a certain species in a certain part of the world? Did certain species thrive? Did they suffer from lack of human, um, you know, uh, human-related uh, conditions? It's going to be very interesting to see how it unfolds research-wise in the next few years. Yeah, definitely. Like the the real, like, peer-reviewed research is what I'm waiting for instead of just those clickbait uh, kind of headlines of wildlife. Yeah, yeah. So happy now that people are gone. Now, is there, a, is there like a peer-reviewed journal that you are drawn to? Like, do you have a preference for a certain journal? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I teach my kids, which some people may argue I, I shouldn't be doing that at the ninth grade level, but I teach them how to do searches for peer-reviewed literature just because there's so much bad information on the web that I really want to teach them kind of right away how to find the good stuff and making sure that I understand just because it's peer review doesn't mean that it's perfect, but as long as they know what that process is, um, 
they have more respect for the information that's in there. So I teach them how to do like a Google Scholar search. Um, sometimes they yeah, get frustrated because they're like, I have to, you know, pay for this paper. And I'm like, no, you don't. Like, we'll figure out a way to get access to it. And you're not realizing that most of the authors, if you just send them an email and say, like, I'm really interested in your paper. Do you think you could send me a copy? But they'll probably send it to you. I mean, as an educator, or as a you know, as a, as an uh, an educator, as a, as your profession, do you think that you can get easier access to peer reviewed literature as opposed to like the average person? I mean, if you contact, you know, the the author of an article and say, hey, you know, doctor such and such, my class really wants to learn more. Can you send it? I mean, do you think that they're more willing to accommodate you than just say like the you know the average the average person who doesn't have any ties to an academic institution? think necessarily i mean that may depend on the individual person but i really think that like if you say like i had published a paper and someone reached out to me and said that they were interested in reading it i think just anybody being interested would make you happy because really the whole point as a scientist like why are you doing your work you're doing your work so that we can learn from it and if it's just gonna end up in this journal that no one's gonna have access to what's the point right which is why huge now like work the fact that most scientists are trying to hopefully work on scientific communication, like how do we share this with the public, right? So other than just focusing on publishing papers and going to these conferences with other professionals, how do we make sure that everyone knows what we learned? Agreed, agreed. It's, it's, you're totally right. It's so easy to get bad information out there and it's easier to get poor quality or completely wrong information as opposed to getting legitimate scientifically based information. Mm -hmm. Like I was, I was, you know, I'll, I'll browse through care guides and things like that just kind of in passing. And, um, I just read, um, Mater's reptile and, um, reptile and amphibian medicine and husbandry. Mm -hmm. And the, it was just so refreshing to be able to see scientifically based recommendations for, for care and for natural history and things like that, rather than, you know, going into say like a big box store and then someone hands you a little piece of paper with information that's completely wrong and outdated. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something to consider for keeping like, I don't know, exotic species is like, where are you going to find information? Because I can just say like, based on the axolotls, it's, it's hard to find good information on axolotls on the internet because what you get is you get a bunch of people who are arguing over whether you should or shouldn't do something, you know, and none of them really know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is there any specific species of amphibian that you would really like to work with? Like, do you have like a dream species that you'd like to study? Um, I mean, I love everything. I love frogs. I mean, frogs, that was so awesome to be able to have the frogs in the classroom. I think I appreciate you a lot more after. Yeah, thank you. After going to Costa Rica and seeing like all the different sorts of frogs that they had there, I I really fell in love with them even more. But um, I definitely try not to limit myself to one particular species or even group of species because I see a lot of people who do that. They become interested and they're like, I am going to, you know, work only with tigers or I want to work only with sharks. And I think that that's really limiting. And so it's better to focus more on like a question that you're passionate about than a specific species. So whatever it is that I get the opportunity to work with in the future, I'd be happy as long as the question is related to ecology and conservation. Awesome. No, that's, that's, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is 
I think that in being able to master, um, I'm, I'm going to be biased. I'm going to say I'm going to say captive care because I'm 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 a hobbyist. I'm not a scientist. I'm you know I'm a hobbyist. I have a vested interest in the care of the animals that I keep, and I have a tremendous amount of intellectual curiosity that I want to satisfy. Plus, being able to, um, I, I look at it as like continuing education. You know, mm-hmm. if you are responsible for or if you're fascinated by another living thing. It behooves you to learn as much about it as you can. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I learned and was that knowing as much as you can about a specific thing really qualifies you more to care for that one specific thing rather than kind of like in general. Um, do, do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I, I don't want to give people advice about species that I have not personally kept successfully for a, a long time. And I found mm-hmm. that like I kind of fell into a trap where – well, he keeps frogs, so he must know about native species. And I say, no, I don't. I'm not really familiar with native species. You know, whereas in the past, I would have said, oh yeah, you know, I I know all about. You know, it's it's. I don't know. I, I think that you're right, though. Making a good, you know, uh, asking a good question, in and finding out what the answer is is really going to be the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't describe myself as an expert on anything. I know a lot of things about a lot of different things, but that's you know diverse everything from inverts to to vertebrates i worked on fishes i did a project with raccoons and possums i was teaching marine science for a while so all sorts of different things that i'm an expert in none but i know a little bit about a little bit cool no i think that's a good attitude to have I me mean, i don't i don't consider myself an expert on anything i i just consider myself to be a perpetual student you know and you're never going to learn everything, but you can try. Yeah. <laughs> you can certainly try. So um, is there anything before we wrap up that you wanted to discuss, like in terms of conservation or any any ongoing projects or things that you're kind of considering for the upcoming school year? It's so hard to plan for the upcoming school year because I don't know if I'm actually going to be in person with the kids or not. Um, I mean, now that I have a hundred more larvae, I could potentially use them in our, in our class experiment. Like I said, I always leave that up to the kids. So if they voted on using the axolotls, I definitely would. Um, last time we did something super simple. We did, um, Daphnia versus brine shrimp and we fed two different groups, the different diets, and we were tracking their growth rate, which was super simple, um, by taking photographs and there was no statistically significant difference in, in their growth rate. So anything like that like I said I try not to pick what I want to do I let the kids do it because I feel like if they're interested in it then they're going to get more excited about it um, but I don't know we'll see hopefully we're we're in the classroom and I can actually do a hands-on experiment not something digital with them yeah I, I it's um, life sciences I think the best thing about life science is that it's 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 live and it's in front of mm-hmm. you and um you know, it's it's going to be interesting, obviously, to see what's going to happen in the fall. I, I know everyone is concerned about so many things, but, um, you know, I'm sure it'll be nice if you have the opportunity to be able to expose your students to all the things that they would have normally gotten, you know, out of the classroom during you know, during different times. We Unfortunately, we've fallen on really tough times here, but, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully things will improve. No, definitely. I mean, I remember studying biology, and I was always kind of turned off by the dead things in the jars like I spent semester after semester with just jars of preserved specimens and dissections and yes you can learn a lot from that but I wanted to get out in the field I wanted to actually interact with you know the living organisms when studying biology right 
Mm-hmm. I love, what, you don't like dead things in jars? Not really. No, no. I mean, when <laughs> I was everyone. a dad student, we all had like our own little carved out section of the lab and everyone else, like their desk was full of skulls and skins and, and dead things. And I was like, I no, I'm going to have a tank here and a tank here and a tank here. I had a little puffer fish and I had the axolotls and yeah. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, I want to thank you so much for being a guest and I think that we had a great discussion and, it, you know, is there, I don't know, um, is there anything you think we missed? I don't think so, but it was my pleasure. I'm always excited to nerd out about science with anybody who will listen. No, I know. And I'm always happy to listen. So again, I want to thank my guest, Miss Brianne Ross, and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Look forward to the next one. Talk to everyone soon. <laughs>